You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. The consciousness in these states um, is not related anymore to the physical body. But the, the people reporting these experiences have the impression of having a consciousness related to a different kind of uh, organization, a different kind of a more subtle body. I think uh, that um, the mind and consciousness can survive the death of the physical body. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. Dr. Mario Beauregard is a PhD, or is an associate researcher at the University of Montreal, author of more than 100 publications in neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry, and has done some really groundbreaking work in neurobiology of emotion and the mystical experience, which is the part of this that I really loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to you. Where are you from originally, by the way? Uh, a region of uh, province of Quebec called Eastern Township. It's near the border with Vermont, actually. Uh-huh. So it's about uh, 50 miles so- south of uh, Montreal. Perfect. It's a very pretty part of the mm-hmm. of the continent. Yeah. Uh, what got you interested in, in, in the spirit? I gather when you're writing your PhD thesis, it was on a bit more than the mystical mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, at that time, uh, uh, it started really when I was uh, very young, at about eight years old, mm-hmm. I started to have um, sort of mystical experiences myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a farmer, so uh, we had a lot of space, uh, fields, uh, forest, and um, we were isolated physically, so I didn't have that many friends, young friends at that age, and I had a lot of time to think uh, by myself, to reflect on all kinds of things, and um, in the woods, in the field, uh, I became convinced, it was like a kind of insight, that mind and soul and brain were all interrelated, but were not the same thing. You could not re- reduce what we call mind and even soul, the, the essence of a human being, mm-hmm. to what was going on in the brain. And at that age, I decided uh, later on to become a scientist, to be able to 
demonstrate that. That, that, that was a, a dream of a child, if you will. So, and that was the, the main motivation, the starting point. And after that, I've had uh, several uh, intense spiritual experiences in my life, uh, including a near-death experience. And um, What happened there? Pardon me? What happened with your near-death experience? Oh, I've been uh, very, very sick uh, when I was uh, 19 years old. I was suffering from uh, several uh, viral infections, mm -hmm. uh, and my nervous system was attacked, too. And uh, I've been lying down in a bed for about a year. And oh, you're kidding me. That, so that's uh, <laughs> at the beginning of uh, university. And so that's, uh, that's how this uh, experience happened, because I was... I didn't have any energy left, and I was feeling like uh, somebody suffering from AIDS or terminal cancer. And uh, th that's when the, the near-death experience happened, and it was a, a turning point for me. So what was your PhD in, specifically? Oh, I was uh, studying the effect of um, uh, various chemical messengers like serotonin and dopamine uh, in... Um, some parts of the brain uh, involved in um, cognitive functions and also emotion. But I was working with rodents then. Mm -hmm. And then I switched uh, after that to uh, monkeys. Mm -hmm. um, I did some work at uh, NIMH. And after that... Uh, NIMH the, is the National Institute of Mental Health. So yes, you're, you're right. here in the States. Yes. And after that, uh, the um, functional neuroimaging techniques developed uh, widely and uh, very rapidly. And so I decided to start using these uh, techniques to investigate uh, questions more related to uh, human consciousness and also spirituality. So neuroimaging, so functional MRI. Exactly. PET scans. And the like. Yes. Uh, so walk us through sort of the basic premise of the book, just to get everyone on the same page. And then I want to quiz you a little bit on the actual experiments. Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, the the basic premise is that in the book, I challenge the mainstream dogma in current neuroscience, which is that mind is what the brain does and that uh, spirituality and spiritual experiences in general can all be reduced to um, misfiring neurons in various portions of the brain. So f for most neuroscientists, very famous neuroscientists, some of them Nobel Prize winners, um, these experiences are simply delusions created by a, a brain which is functioning uh, in a dysfunctional manner. Uh, and, and they relate these experiences uh, mostly to uh, the temporal lobe region because mm -hmm. it's well known that uh, some uh, epileptic patients, when the seizures are located uh, within the temporal lobe region, well, uh, they will report sometimes uh, religious or uh, spiritual experiences. does not happen often, but it does. And uh, based on this, uh, many neurologists and also neuroscientists have claimed that uh, this is a demonstration that all these experiences are simply uh, delusions or hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And I, I decided to challenge this uh, in the book. So is there a soul? That's the, <laughs> the fundamental question. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's a matter of semantics. Of course, in neuroscience, we do not uh, discuss about the, the soul itself. But um, I, uh, in the book, I try to demonstrate that there's, a, if you will, a spiritual component 
of uh, human nature, which cannot be systematically reduced to uh, electrical and chemical processes in the brain. And uh, if you take the case of uh, near-death studies, for instance, it's very interesting because uh, there are cases now where we know for sure that the brain was not functioning uh, within the context of, for instance, a standstill uh, procedure, surgery when the, the heart is stopped and the blood is totally drained from the head yep. and there's no EEG activity anymore. And yet we have cases where the, the, the person undergoing the surgery was able um, to um, float over her physical body and to report veridically information concerning uh, the surgical instruments that were used, the dialogues between the surgeons and the nurses uh, and the cardiologists, for instance. And um, also during that state, some of these experiences also report traveling along a tunnel and uh, meeting with deceased relatives uh, and friends. And uh, the last step of this experience uh, is the meeting, the encounter with a beautiful being of light, a sentient being. Mm -hmm. uh, And for most of these experiencers, this being of light represents God, if you will. So we have a case, uh, in particular the case of Pam Reynolds. Yes. And she she underwent such a surgery uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we know for sure that there was no brain activity in her brain using EEG, at least no electrical activity, and yet she's able to report veridical information concerning um, the environment. And so uh, she was able to have consciousness, she was able to perceive, to feel, and to remember who she was. And so that may be a definition of what we uh, call the soul, if you will, because apparently the brain was not functioning anymore. Right. There was a uh, go ahead. I was just wondering how science, how an, a neuroscientist, not yourself, but a, someone on the opposite side, yes. would explain that phenomenon. Uh, well, they will uh, they will negate this experience. They will say that there was uh, probably uh, she was able to hear something, or uh, she was not really clinically dead, or they are forced to try to uh, reject. The, all of these lines of evidence, because they do not fit with the mainstream materialist uh, worldview, uh, which which is still dominant in uh, well across all science di- the disciplines, but especially in neuroscience, because it's really it's uh, like a religious dogma. It's uh, the mind and the soul, if you will, are simply what the brain does. So when the brain stops functioning, there's nothing left anymore. One argument that I've heard, Lisa, is that um, you have a place in the temporal lobe that is responsible for pulling together our senses into an experience. So Mm -hmm. it pulls together sight and hearing, sensation, touch, and uh, that creates my perception of me being here in the studio Mm -hmm. talking to Mario and you. And when we start to lose blood supply to the brain, because that's a watershed area, it's the place in between where arteries go to the brain, it's one of the first places to get ischemic, become having inadequate blood. Mm-hmm. And once you lose that connection of the senses, then you have individual senses uh, which are more dominant, and you just have those flighty memories. So um, you have, uh, you hear, although you may not see, or you hear and see, but you don't feel. Uh, you don't have the appropriate uh, sense of fear, for example, when you're going through this. Now, this may actually be uh, something that is you know, normal for the brain to deal with because when you take certain types of 
of drugs it probably can, can right. create these kinds of mm-hmm. uh, events as well. Uh, I agree, Mario, that there's a religious difference here. And it, it has to be described in that phrase because that's really what it's like. You either believe it's possible or you believe that it's not possible. Then you fit the data to what you believe. Yes. Uh, I just want to understand a little better, uh, at least an intelligent neuroscientist type uh, insight about how this could be. If, in fact, we have uh, a metaphor, which is probably not quite accurate, but is often used between, about hardware and software, mm-hmm. then it does offer some opportunities to explain the brain, but some limitations as well. Do you buy into that metaphor for how our brain functions? Well, to, to a certain degree, but uh, the question is, what is the origin of the software? Because if, for us, uh, neuroscientists and current scientists, uh, the software can be identified to... Uh, what we call um, the mind or mental functions, mental processes, then uh, it, it's quite possible because, uh, for instance, in my lab, I've done a series of uh, neuroimaging studies showing that uh, if you take the case of uh, psychotherapy, for instance, mm-hmm. when the people, uh, patients can restructure what we call cognitive schemas or uh, thought processes, for, for instance, regarding uh, specific phobia, spider phobia. Right. When they do that, if you scan them before and after therapy, it will change that the brain is totally uh, transformed, that new circuits emerge, and that the uh, regions uh, that are associated with, um, for instance, emotion processing, processing of um, negative events and stimuli emotionally, well, the, their activity decreased dramatically after therapy. So it's true that whenever we change the mind or the software is modified, then uh, what's going on in the brain, in the hardware, uh, modifies accordingly. So that's true. And to recognize that, we, we know that also based on the placebo effect, because there has been a few studies recently showing that, for instance, in Parkinsonian patients, mm-hmm. um, when they have a degree of destruction of about 80% of their nerve cells producing dopamine, the chemical messenger controlling for motor functioning, mm-hmm. if they believe in the placebo treatment, they can start producing, releasing dopamine in their brain, uh, like healthy normal uh, subjects for a while. And so it's clear based on this that beliefs, expectations, thoughts can modulate markedly what's going on in the brain. Uh, but to recognize that does not mean that the mind can exist independently of the brain. So, uh, but I agree with, with this metaphor. The software uh, dramatically influenced what's going on in the hardware. However, we don't know the extent to which the software or who writes the software right. is independent of, you know, <laughs> what's going on in the hardware. That's, that's a crucial question. It is a crucial question. It's a very good point because yeah. today the software does not modify the hardware. <laughs> and uh, when we can understand that, we'll have smarter machines. But I think that is part of the future where computing uh, is absolutely. going. Uh, it may be uh, based on how our brain actually works. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we come back with Dr. Mario Beauregard, the author of The Spiritual Brain, A Neuroscientist's Case for the Existence of the Soul, I'm going to ask a little bit about how we perceive reality outside of ourselves. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Let me come back to this basic issue of how we perceive the world outside of us, because it is a part of this broad discussion about spirituality. And you left me with the very intriguing idea that uh, the metaphor of the brain having a hardware and a software may not be that inaccurate as long as we're willing to admit that the software can modify the hardware. Right. So how do we perceive the world outside of us? I mean, how do we go from the objective reality that a, a brain cell senses light or an edge because it fires or doesn't fire to putting all these things together to recognize our grandmother or an experience that's so much more complicated than what one cell might be able to figure out? Well, in reality, we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So what, what we know are the, uh, what we call the neural correlates of these experiences. So we know, for instance, if you take the case of a visual system, how are you able to perceive your, you know, your grandmother or a tree? Or... So we know what's going on in terms of um, neural activity mm-hmm. at the level of the retina and also the, uh, the nerve pathways in the visual system and the, the visual cortex you know, at the back of our heads. And uh, so we know which regions are doing, uh, you know, what what type of uh, treatment or processing of information. But the mystery still remains, how do it's possible for these regions to bind all the information together, the data uh, or the information processing, to create uh, what we call, uh, for instance, a single percept. So this is called the binding problem. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's related to awareness, and consciousness. So, for instance, visual awareness. And so uh, there are multiple models about this yet, but no very robust theory. Is there even one simple example of a more complex action than you know, recognizing a line mm-hmm. that we know works in the brain? Is mm-hmm. there any way we can understand how we recognize things, for example? Well, uh, it, we have models about it. So uh, it's uh, according to the current models, uh, the, there's a, a storage of information 
regarding the objects in the external world and also internally. And so the um, the, the perceptual system is closely related with the, the, the memory system. And so the, the memory retrieval or uh, the recognition, for instance, of a given object uh, in the external world uh, would be uh, related to the uh, reactivation, for instance, of the uh, information processing related to this object, for it, for instance, a, a cop or a tree or uh, whatever. So uh, that, the, the current models propose that. But for the, the conscious aspect of the experience, what we call technically the qualia, you know, associated with uh, viewing a tree, for instance, that we don't know. Then how do we go from even that most basic insight that we need to have to the, for me anyway, much more challenging discussion about spirituality. And let me ask you this from a practical way. Why do some people seem to be more easily able to have an out-of-body experience, to, to have a spiritual experience than others? Why was it that you, at age eight, could walk into the woods in northern Quebec mm-hmm. and have a, a, uh, one of these aha spiritual coming-to-God moments, and most of the kids your age didn't? What's different about your brain? Well, perhaps it's not related to, to the brain. Who that's, knows? That's an argument stopper. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, who knows? Uh, it, it's not been studied yet. So uh, there have been reports of um, you know, spiritual experiences, uh, books about this, uh, where they have, been, well, a few studies, uh, including thousands of experiences by all kinds of people uh, across the world. In, in UK, for instance, in the 70s and 80s, and so they collected thousands of reports for, from all kinds of people. Uh, and these people, so they, uh, in these studies, they were not able to establish correlation with, for instance, the socioeconomic status or um, the level of education or apparently genetics. Or, so it's not clear yet why some people will have these experiences and others no. Uh, not at all. But there have been arguments made about a God gene, for example. Yes, yes. Any merit to this? Well, no, because it's not very well supported empirically. And even the Dinamer, the, the geneticist who uh, wrote the book, is now backing up regarding this because it's too simplistic. We know that uh, for all kinds of behaviors, you need um, the involvement of thousands of genes and the interactions between these genes. So it uh, doesn't seem to, to be that simple. So it's, it's more complicated. But um, if you take the case of people believing in having spiritual beliefs, uh, these people will uh, sometimes tell you that perhaps it's the product, it's related to uh, past lives, you know, mm-hmm. reincarnation. So they, they, they use this example, for instance, to say that wh- how do you explain Mozart, for instance, who was able to work, you know, to play the piano in a grandiose fashion at four years old. So the, the same uh, explanation could apply to perhaps uh, young people like me who uh, are having a spiritual experiences. Who knows? Uh, there might be uh, a spiritual component or a spiritual dimension involved on so, in these experiences. So these experiences would be triggered not only by our own volition or by the way our brains are functioning, but also uh, because of the intervention of another level of reality. Who knows? Of course, scientifically, we cannot uh, uh, confirm or disconfirm this, this kind of thesis. Just 
theoretically, uh, and these questions must come to you in religious circles, <clears throat> Uh, what are the kinds of questions you get asked uh, for which you, you're sort of comfortable giving a theoretical answer from spiritual leaders? And again, I'm not holding you to a very concrete biological explanation, but if a religious leader says, why is it easier for some to believe than others? Why is it easier for some to let go of reality than others? Why is it easier for some to acknowledge that 99% of what's around us is just a you know, superficial veneer? And deeper reality is the 1% below that, sort of like the matrix. Mm-hmm. You know, is it just a matter of taking time to think it through? You think it's a hardware issue? You think it's a software issue? Well, it probably involves uh, both levels. And it's related to the way you've been uh, brought up. It's uh, a matter of personal belief systems also. So uh, an, an influence of hidden uh, variables, hidden factors uh, on a spiritual level. Uh, because there, it seems that some people are more in touch with uh, spirituality or spiritual dimensions, if you will, whereas all the other people are more focused on uh, what we can call the material world. And, um, you know, there, there be, may be all kinds of factors explaining that, including biological factors, uh, genetics, uh, the way the brain is configured, but also... Uh, other factors, uh, probably. What, what have been the, so it's complex. The biggest epiphanies for you, the biggest insights, as you look at functional MRI and PET scans and try to understand why certain types of behaviors activate certain parts of the brain. Because I, I gather as a neuroscientist, you're also learning that there are places where the hardware, as you mentioned earlier, gets changed yes. by how the mind is driving the person. Yeah. So give me, if you could, a couple examples. When someone prays, for example, for mm-hmm. or meditates for prolonged periods of time, what kind of changes do you see in the brain? Well, uh, there are a few studies out there that have looked at this specifically mm-hmm. uh, for people who have been meditating for um, a few decades, for instance. And uh, apparently this changed even the structure of the brain. So, uh, for instance, the, the cortex, cortical layers become thicker in some regions of the brain. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the structure itself is modified. And also the, the way the cer- certain brain regions and uh, certain brain circuits function is altered um, crucially, dramatically, uh, based on meditation and, uh, for instance, prayer. Uh, I've done a study with Carmelite nuns uh, cloistered nuns, and um, we had calculated that the, these nuns had spent altogether uh, over 200,000 uh, hours uh, in prayer and <laughs> contemplation in That's their lives yeah. as uh, members of the Carmelite order. And um, so at baseline, during resting state, when we look at their um, EEG activity, EEG measures electrical activity in the brain, uh, we have access now to normative database comparing normal population with special groups of uh, subjects. Well, in these people, these nuns, you see much more delta and theta waves, very slow waves, uh, at rest during resting state than the normal population. What does that mean? What does that mean for the average listener? What's the implication? Well, it means that probably uh, because of the all the time they have spent in uh, prayer and contemplation, uh, it has uh, induced a long-term change in the way their brain is functioning. And uh, we know that these very slow waves are associated with, uh, well, if you take the case of delta waves, you see them in deep sleep, also in certain uh, comas, very deep comas. 
Um, and theta waves uh, are seen uh, in the period just preceding uh, sleep, falling and, and asleep. They, and they have more of these. Yes, but in the normal population, when the, you, you have more delta waves or theta waves, uh, while awake, you're in trouble because you're, <laughs> you're challenged connect, connectively. It's, it's harder for you. But in the case of these nuns, uh, they are not. Uh, they are performing very well cognitively. So it's like if um, their uh, activity, their contemplative life, has led them to major transformation in the way their brains operate. And it's possible that because of that, they feel more in touch with the spiritual world. So to come back to your question, I don't know, but in my case, perhaps I was born with. Uh, a specific, uh, perhaps not abnormality, but something uh, a little bit strange about the way the brain was designed, and so and this would have allowed me to be uh, to feel more in touch with other dimensions or realities. Uh, who knows? Well, if, you, if you take ten psychics, mm. self-proclaimed psychics, because yeah. I know that people argue whether it's true or not, yeah. <laughs> take ten psychics and then ten average Joes like me. So don't pretend to have any ability to see what's going on without yes. actually seeing what's going on with my own eyes. Uh, how do our brains differ? Is there any reproducible difference that, that a neuroscientist could discern? It's not been studied yet. It's not been. Uh, it's starting to be investigated by Dr. Gary Schwartz at University of Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, he's uh, examining what's going on in the brain using EEG uh, while uh, certain psychics uh, become entranced. You know, to access uh, other kinds of uh, information, but it's really just beginning. So we don't know yet about this. It's not clear yet. And if I could, let me uh, ask you about uh, a phrase that's been used to describe you: a non-materialist neuroscientist. What does that mean? Well, it means that you we, you can um, use the the tools of modern neuroscience, but. Uh, without the materialist a priori, without the uh, materialist uh, basic assumption that the mind is, is what the brain does and that spirituality and spiritual experiences are simply delusions created by an abnormal brain. And so that's exactly what I mean when I say it's not necessary for uh, a neuroscientist to be materialist. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I think about it in that context, some of the fundamental insights that I've gained through practice of medicine that have challenged my belief that it's all about the chemistry of the brain uh, come to bear. A good example is the placebo effect. Right. And here's a, a, a change in the way that our body functions based on something that we understand in our brain mm-hmm. and maybe in our mind, yeah. but doesn't really have any impact on our body except for that. Mm-hmm. And yet we see differences that are 30, 35%, significant differences. Yes. And it calls into question the broader healing uh, role that uh, the placebo effect stimulates in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you explain that? What, what mechanistically is happening? Well, I've proposed uh, recently um, a theory about that. It's called a, um, psychoneural transduction theory, and it's been published in... Rolls uh, right up to my tongue. Psychoneural transduction. Transduction theory. How come neuroscientists don't make up like easy words? Like, uh, <laughs> like the placebo idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I published this in um, Progress of Neurobiology, a very uh, well-known journal in the field of neuroscience. And according to this view, um, there would be a transduction between what we uh, refer to as mental functions and processes, for instance, beliefs, expectations, in mm-hmm. the case of placebo effect, and um, 
the electrical, uh, chemical and metabolical processes going on in the brain. So there would be a kind of translation, if you will, between, for instance, uh, a belief or a desire uh, and what's going on in the brain uh, at various levels. So, for instance, um, um, a fear, fear uh, fearful thoughts would be associated with or would translate to uh, an increased uh, secretion of cortisol and adrenaline, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, feelings of well-being uh, would be associated, for instance, with secretion of endorphins or ankyphalins. So, and evolution, biological evolution, would have led to uh, this kind of translation process. So, the, in other words, the brain itself would be designed to be able to uh, recognize and to translate uh, what's going on at what we can call the mind level. When we come back, I want to follow up on this placebo f- effect uh, that you've been studying and writing about mm-hmm. uh, with the big question uh, of what was the adaptive value of it. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We've been trying to get to the root reality of the difference between the brain and the mind. And coming to grips with the... um, the, the different belief systems within medicine that affect how you can explain these, even in your own research. Uh, let me go back to placebo for a second. You know, you've very nicely articulated why through a variety of hormonal, neurochemical, um, and other mechanisms that the expectations of the brain can influence the actions of the body. Mm-hmm. All makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Is there a survival value of this? Is this something that, that would happen by chance because no one was thinking about it? Or do you think there's a benefit uh, of these kinds of impacts 
uh, the relatively profound impacts that the brain can have on the body. Well, because the, the mind and the brain are very strongly uh, interrelated and the, the brain is connected also to uh, all the physiological systems in the body, it can have a tremendous value uh, in terms of evolution because um, uh, if you are able to realize the, the power you have uh, to influence uh, what's going on in your brain and your physical body, then... Uh, you know, it, it can bring uh, tremendous benefits. Uh, but there's a downside because uh, this means that, for instance, if you're not able to, uh, you know, take care of the negative thoughts that you may entertain and negative feelings, then it will have a, a very negative effect on uh, your brain and your body also. So, but it's like um, if uh, humans have to, at a certain point, across evolution to realize that they have this uh, great power to influence what's going on, you know, in their brains and in their body. But it can have a great evolutionary value if only the, real, the humans can realize that at a certain point across uh, evolution. You know, I was uh, in uh, Peru and Chile uh, recently, and while traveling through the, the Atacama Desert in uh, northern Chile, uh, we came upon these these cave drawings. Mm-hmm. They are uh, drawings that are between thousand and two thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a large civilization in this part uh, of uh, South America that actually predates uh, mm-hmm. the Incas. And these illustrations were sort of zany. They had uh, weird figures of human bodies. They had arms coming off in weird locations. You know, huge ears and. The guides who were taking us around, who were very reputable people, really had spent a lot of time studying this, had been educated formally by uh, archaeologists in his topics, believed that these were made by Indian tribes uh, for spiritual reasons, and they thought that the people making them had been under the influence of hallucinogens. And in fact, there's the Santa Rosa cactus, there are, there, mm-hmm. there are other peyote, there, yes. there, are, there are drugs in some of these foods. Remember, in the desert, the plants, because they have to be very concentrated in their, mm-hmm. um, in their chemicals in order to survive, uh, also ke- concentrate the chemicals that influence us, mm-hmm. which is why a quarter of all these plants have medicinal impacts. Mm-hmm. In any case, they argued that the, 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 these cultures use these drugs uh, not to abuse them, but as part of their ritual practices and freed their minds mm-hmm. to, to, to do this. Now, this is, again, go for, fast forward 1960 years to 1960, and you've got Timothy O'Leary doing yeah. <laughs> uh, LSD mm-hmm. uh, experiments at Harvard and the like. What is it that these drugs do to our brain that may free the mind to, to have some of these visions that some can get without the drugs or others seem to need the drugs to get yeah. there? Well, um, they act mostly, uh, these drugs, on a uh, chemical messenger that is called serotonin. Mm-hmm. And serotonin is, all, uh, is involved in all kinds of functions, including uh, emotion regulation, but also spiritual experiences. And uh, what these drugs do in general is that they will uh, change the, the information processing in the brain in such a way that the, the people ingesting the drug will become focused, but mostly on what's going on internally in terms of uh, consciousness. And uh, so the, uh, the focus on the external world will reduce. And the, for instance, the, uh, the fast EEG waves that you can see during uh, uh, in a state of um, awakening, for instance, will vanish. And then you will um, observe the uh, occurrence of slower waves. And it seems that this uh, electrical and chemical shift in the brain will allow uh, an expansion of the sense of self. 
And uh, it, just to clear for everybody, these are the same slow waves as you said. The Carmelite nuns naturally it, it, increase, it, it, and exactly. people who have developmental connective yes. problems have, unfortunately, as well. Yes, yes, that's right. But so that's because of this uh, electrochemical shift in the brain. It's like if uh, this shift will allow the, the the experiencers to be able to get in touch with other types of other realms, uh, other uh, realms of reality, uh, spiritual dimensions, which are not accessible uh, because the, the brain usually, normally, during the day, uh, when we are very busy cognitively, it acts like uh, a sort of reducing valve. And so you're more focused on uh, what's going on physically, also internally, but physiologically. And um, it's like if you... narrows the uh, amount of reality that you can perceive. So um, it acts like uh, what we can call a reducing valve. And if you take the chemicals or you do deep breathing, you can then change uh, the way the brain is operating mm-hmm. and you have access to a modified state of consciousness. And so that's why these uh, these people have been using uh, such drugs for uh, thousands of years now. This does... Physical activity also changed these brainwaves? Well, apparently, yes, it does. So, uh, apparently, I've received letters from people doing jogging, for instance, and yeah. uh, they told me that after a while, uh, apparently, you hit like um, a kind of wall, and if you go, you transcend this state, then uh, there's also sort of modifications neurochemically in the brain and the body, and you can have a very deep mystical experience during these states. So it's yes, been reported high. by some joggers uh, that they've... I've, I've received letters from joggers saying that uh, they've had very deep mystical experience uh, while doing jogging. Let's take that broad theory because I am curious about how we sort of free ourselves from reality to near death, which is an area you've done some research in. Mm-hmm. And uh, writing in the book a little bit about how independence mm-hmm. of the mind from the brain yep. might occur at, at this juncture. What have you learned about that? Well, uh, we we have a few cases. Uh, I talked earlier about the case of uh, the, the woman named Pam Reynolds, but there are other cases as well. And it seems that um, it's possible for, uh, contrary to uh, the mainstream view in neuroscience, um, when the brain stops functioning or is not functioning properly, uh, when there's no blood circulation anymore across the brain or uh, EEG activity is totally uh, gone, for instance, Uh, the mainstream view that there's nothing that can happen cognitively or emotionally because uh, there's no self-awareness anymore. But we have cases indicating that, to the contrary, uh, the people in this kind of state will experience a greater sense of self and also they are able to have a very vivid sense of uh, perception, for instance, and the feelings, everything is like heightened compared to a normal state right. of consciousness. So that would suggest that uh, mind and consciousness can uh, operate independently uh, from the brain in certain situations. But usually, of course, uh, we will talk more of uh, embodied mind and consciousness. Uh, so it's a different sort of uh, mind and consciousness because the consciousness in these states um, is not related anymore to the physical body. But the, the people reporting these experiences have the impression of having a consciousness related to a different kind of uh, organization, a different kind of a more subtle body, uh, if you will. That's what they report. So you could have a, a completely non-functioning brain, 
but a soul that's still able to process or create? Well, some anecdotal cases uh, suggest that. But we need to do uh, real research projects, uh, systematic research to uh, tackle this uh, very intriguing issue. Well, I ask you because if you had an EEG that was flatlined in a patient who was not resuscitatable, at least as far as we know in modern medicine, yeah. in theory then their their minds would be able to keep going. And so when you disconnect the ventilator, for example, and they yeah. don't breathe, that mind will be what goes to heaven if you believe in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. That's the concept? Yes. Uh, but if they don't believe in an afterlife, they're trapped in their body anyway. So I'm not sure it makes much difference. It is an intriguing concept. Oh, yeah, of if course. You, yeah. If you separate the two. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think there's a, what, what do you think happens to the mind when you die? <laughs> um, I think uh, that... Um, the mind and consciousness can survive the death of the physical body. But it's personal belief, of course. Sure. Uh, but it's based also on my own uh, uh, near-death experience and uh, based also on subjective reports from other near-death experiencers. Because there are cases, very impressive cases. For instance, there's a, a guy who was uh, dying from a brain cancer mm-hmm. uh, about 20 years ago, Thomas Benedict, and uh, here in America. And he... Um, he died clinically for 90 minutes, mm-hmm. and he experienced all sorts of fascinating things during uh, his near-death experience. And, at the, and he came back, and uh, at the end, uh, in the following days, the, the brain cancer was totally uh, gone, totally mm. vanished. Mm. And so, uh, so, so, you know, if you take all, the, you know, these, all these cases uh, together, they strongly suggest that Yes, mind and consciousness can survive physical death. We're talking today to, to Dr. Mario Beauregard, author of The Spiritual Brain, a neuroscientist's case for the existence of the soul. Mario, if um, at the end of the day, uh, and then this is pure conjecture, uh, of all the things that you've done as a neuroscientist and the, 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 the theoretical work you've done looking at the mind, what, what has taught you the most about God? What do you, what do you, what do you take away as a, as a seasoned studier of the brain about God's existence? Well, I think that the, uh, uh, at least in my view, and based on my own personal uh, spiritual experiences, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I think God has created the, the physical universe, mm-hmm. and uh, including uh, all physical matter or in the brain. And, I, and it's not vice versa. Contrary to many of my colleagues, it's not the brain uh, which creates God, but it's, mm-hmm. it's vice versa. And uh, in this view... Um, the brain itself is, uh, acts like a kind of interface or transponder, and it allows people uh, to have access to all kinds of uh, realities and dimensions, and including very intense mystical experience. So it's possible to communicate with God through prayer, contemplation, meditation, uh, using the brain. So that's how I see it. It's like a marvelous instrument, very sophisticated, that allows all sorts of experience, including this experience of communication with what we call God. And when the, this fascinating instrument uh, is destroyed, uh, it's still possible for the essence of the person to experience communication with God, but using other uh, means, if you will. You know, uh, there, there might be uh, another brain, a more subtle brain that exists after the death of physical brain. But um, 
that, that's how I see this, this uh, question. Mario Barrigard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an intriguing discussion about the spiritual brain, which is also the title of your book. Thanks for your great work at the University of Montreal and uh, doing some of these uh, newfangled neuroimaging studies to try to figure out exactly what's going on in our mind and in yeah. our brain. Part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.